This is John Porteous of the Lovells Township Historical Society, and you're listening to the Backcast Podcast. This is our Hot Stove Edition, and in fact, it's our last episode of the Hot Stove Edition. Uh, We've got a great guest for you today. Richard and I had a lot of fun speaking with Gary, and uh, we'll just jump right into the interview and uh, have at it from there. So, enjoy. Okay, hey everybody. It's John Porteous, and I'm here with Richard Perry. Hello. This is this will be the uh, last of our hot stove chats for the season, and uh, we're we're grateful to be joined by Gary Newman. Uh, Gary is our township supervisor, uh, neighbor, friend, again, all around good guy, and uh, a lot of people know him in a lot of various ways, but may not know that. Uh, for a portion of his life, uh, Gary had a rather interesting career posting, and uh, that involved uh, shuttling presidents of the United States around in a helicopter. So uh, I'm not going to. Uh, we'll let Gary tell tell us about that. So, Gary, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes. As always, pleasure. Of course. The um, so. Where to start? Why don't, why don't we start with, um, I think some of our listeners who were with us last time know that you uh, went into the service uh, shortly after uh, high school, and uh, w- maybe uh, use that as a segue to tell us all a little more about that and, and what you got involved with and, and kind of how all that evolved. Sure. Uh, I... Uh was born and raised down in Bridgeport Township, which is just a little bit south of Saginaw. And uh, I graduated from Bridgeport High School in 64. So at that point in time, uh, things were pretty quiet on the international stage. And uh, while there were people in my class that did join the military, I uh, had significant interest in education and that was helped significantly by my parents. So I went off to college after high school graduation, Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, and uh, I went there for a few semesters. Oh, you did! <laughs> Congratulations! So I uh, show up in at Western, finish in 1968, and uh, in 1968, about May 1st, when I graduated, it took the Selective Service System about 10 days to revoke my 2S deferment and make me a 1A which uh, was actually only about four months after the start of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam in 1968. Okay. So, uh, in fact, I went and visited my local draft board. There was a pleasant lady at the, at the front desk and a couple more at desks behind the counter, and I asked uh, what my chances were with the draft, and she said, well, it kind of depends on how many they ask for, but I can tell you, you might see... Thanksgiving here, but I doubt she'll be here for Christmas. So I started to hunt for a place to serve where I didn't get drafted. So a lot of knocking on doors because I had an idea that I wanted to fly, but not every service was too interested in my Bachelor's of Business Administration degree. <laughs> and uh, But ultimately was a Marine captain said, uh, son, he says, you... Uh, pass our, our tests for aviation and we can write you a contract that says 
if you make it through officer's candidate school, we'll send you to flight school. And I thought that was about as good a thing as I could uh, manage, given the time. Uh, and uh, another little tidbit right about this time, my father had been concerned about what I was going to do with my military obligation. He was a World War II Navy mm -hmm. vet in the Pacific. And uh, when I made the decision and did, in fact, join the Marine Corps, I had a delay of about six weeks before I actually departed. I called home, and uh, uh, my father answered the phone. It wasn't common that he did that. Usually it was my mom. But father answers the phone, and we're only a minute into the conversation, and he says, son, have you managed to figure out what you're going to do with your draft obligation? And I said, yes, I have, Dad. I've solved it. He said, well, how did you solve it, son? I said, I've joined the Marine Corps. He says, son, do you have any idea of what you've just done? <laughs> but <laughs> he always said, had said that at least the Navy gave you three meals a day in Iraq. There was a point to that, too. <laughs> but in any event, so I joined the Marine Corps that fall of 68, uh, and uh, I was commissioned in uh, March of 69. Uh, at the completion of officer's candidate school. So I made it through that that uh, process and off to Army flight school I went. I went to the Army flight school because the Navy just couldn't train enough Marine pilots to fly helicopters. Uh, the <clears throat> obligated service period wasn't very long and not many people desired to do a second tour in Vietnam. So yeah. it was real common to go through training, get sent to Vietnam, which is exactly what happened to me. And uh, at the completion of that, you might have a year or two left and you'd be done. So I, I graduated from Army Flight School as a helicopter pilot in December of 69. And uh, within six months, I had returned to the Marine Corps and, and retrained in the Marine Corps' medium helicopter, which is uh, uh, now out of the inventory, but only by about 10 years. Was called a CH-46, and and it did the same kind of uh, missions that the Army used the Huey for. It was the the common lift just about everything from medevacs to beans and bullets uh, for the Marine Corps support of the ground forces. Um, so I showed up in Vietnam in the summer of 1970 and spent uh, 11 months there. I can't say that I had a real enjoyable tour. Nobody there would nobody, say that. Nobody did. Nobody did, but uh, I uh, learned a lot about myself, and uh, most of it was good. Some of it I could do a little improvement on, you know, but uh, I returned with my entire unit in, uh, in May of 1971 because we were in the process then of actually demobilizing and Marines were one of the first ones to come back. So we departed Vietnam that spring, late spring, and my unit in its entirety showed up at Quantico, Virginia. Quantico is the home of the uh, United States Marine Corps education. Uh, all of its schools are there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got an airfield, and on the airfield is the Presidential Helicopter Squadron, and we were the second squadron to go to that airfield, and we spent a couple of years there from 71 to 73. And uh, I was 
coming up in 73 on my time to either depart the Marine Corps and do something else or stay in. I still single, but uh, I enjoyed the Marine Corps and I enjoyed, really enjoyed flying. That was a mm -hmm. fun thing. And uh, the headquarters Marine Corps folks got a hold of me and said, uh, since you have indicated your interest in, in staying in the Marine Corps and we uh, consider you uh, okay for a regular commission to give you career status, uh, but we need some people at this unit at Quantico called HMX-1, which is the Presidential Helicopter Squadron. So wow. I, uh, I, I was How asked. How did that hit you? Well, that was kind of neat. <laughs> I, and, and these guys never talked. And there was a lot of old guys there. Um, and I came to find out that a lo there were a lot of repeat guys that would go spend a tour for three years, maybe four, depart for a year or two, and then return. Uh, but in any event, uh, one thing was I had to be a volunteer. And I can understand that. That makes good sense. You also have to be pretty um, confident that anybody you attempt to bring in is going to make it through the top secret White House access um, process. Oh, the security? The security sure. process. Sure. Uh, it was really thorough. I can remember during that general time frame when I was just associating with a unit, I made a visit home on leave, and I had a couple of friends back home said, guy in a black suit and a white shirt, you know, stopped by and he had a picture of you and he wanted to make sure that the picture he had was in fact you. That, that struck most people as really odd. Mm -hmm. But I can understand what they were making sure of too. Sure. But in any event, uh, I did pass that. Uh, it didn't probably hurt that I wasn't known as a bad pilot. I, I probably, it's a small service. And, and good pilots are known, and that's the majority of them. But the bad ones, and there's a few. I mean, it's like any other. F yeah. You got a number one and a number 100. You know. know who your power hitters are. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, that had to be amazingly flattering to, you know, I, I think you're soft pedaling this. I, you must have been pretty really good to come up on the radar that way. Well, I don't, I, I never really got into the, ins and outs of how that occurs at Quanti I mean at headquarters I know that uh, that within the unit there was an opportunity for the unit to, to say no to a, someone that headquarters thought might fit the bill okay but and I uh, in, in fact really enjoyed my tour there and I had a commander for most of my time there that was pretty close to a second father to me uh, not often does that develop, but we still remain friends and in contact on a regular basis. And a couple of years ago, he spent a couple of nights with me up here. Oh, neat. So, hmm. uh, so you came up through OCS. Is that an unusual for an OCS uh, grad to move into you know, a position like that? Or well, I think that's that, kind of for academy guys. Uh, <clears throat> well, academy <laughs> guys are have their own have their own avenues, and actually I didn't see all that many academy guys. They weren't in the helicopter program. Weren't in the helicopter. Yeah, they, yeah. they were the white scarf guys. Well, they, they offered to send me to OCS several times, but they were talking about Oklahoma Cook School. So. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Very gotcha. nice. Well, it, the Navy guys, they, they kind of like the uh, 
the Blue Angel gig, don't they? Yeah, they do. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, I guess the obvious question is, which presidents did you fly? Yep. That's the next thing on the docket here. So I arrived in HMX at, in 1973, summer of, and uh, that was about exactly a year before President Nixon resigned. So that was a really interesting year to be essentially in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, watching what was happening day to day in the newspaper and on the news with President Nixon and the Congress. Um, Meaning, I watched our, our his first. Our system is being turned upside down in front of our very eyes. It, the first, well, Nixon's vice president at the time he resigned, and uh, Jerry Ford was was given that job as vice president. Um, Michigan alum. Yep, Michigan <laughs> alum. Although they claimed all the time he played football without a helmet, but that was just an inside yeah. DC joke. Yeah. And. Uh, <laughs> His, his, his aerobatics on the, yeah. uh, on the landing strip, yeah. <laughs> in fact, I can remember well my, my first trip out of the D.C. area with the, in support of the president, and it was President Nixon, was to, of all places, Tri-City Airport and Midland Bay City Airport. And, and we flew the president to about three stops around the thumb, and he was there with a congressional... Uh, aspirant, and I believe his name was Starling or Sperling, um, for U.S. Congress. Hmm. And uh, it was an off-year election. It was filling a vacancy. And uh, and the individual that President Nixon was there um, campaigning for lost, despite the fact that it was a strongly Republican area. And a lot of them, because of the timing, I blame some of that. They believed on President Nixon. Some of the collateral for the collateral current events of the day. from that. Yeah. So. Wow. Well, that was a weird time. Were you flying when he backed out when he had that last day? No. Um, that President Nixon's last day, uh, which, which by the way, was negotiated, and right. uh, <clears throat> and I played a little tiny small part. Not in the negotiations, but in relating uh, some of the concerns within the military and government in general. Well, we had this unit that I was in, the presidential unit, we had the um, quick response mission for evacuation of the White House by helicopter. Ah, okay. And right across from what is now. Um, It was National Airport, uh, and it's now Reagan, Reagan Airport, hmm. Ronald Reagan International. So right across from that was a place called Anacostia. It was an old naval station, but it had a big hangar in it. Washington Navy Yard. And then Washington Navy Yard. And in that big hangar, we could store or, or place three of these white-top helicopters, the same ones you see today on the news. And uh, in fact, we'd have them hooked up to tugs. And if uh, we had a occasion to to vacate the White House by helicopter, they'd be hauled out. We'd jump in them, get them all started, and uh, take and probably individual landings on the South Lawn to pick up. Obviously, first load would be the president, and subsequent and loads important staff. So, so those were ready to spin at the flip of the finger. It's just like boom, twenty four seven. 
Okay. And we were tested two or three times a week. Sometimes they'd tell us to fly. Sometimes they'd just say, turn only. So we'd jump in them, get them started, get them turning, check in that we were ready to go. They'd wow. say, okay, shut down. Well, how did your... I'm curious because, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in the military. I went you know, the Guard and Reserve and regular. But how did your duty roster go? I mean, did you have to be available all the time? That, no. That, that would uh, cut into your life. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we had three helo crews, which would be six pilots, and about twice that in enlisted crews. But the building was big enough for all that, and they rotated it on a three-day cycle. So we had enough pilots in the unit that you got to spend two three-day cycles a month on that alert duty at Anacostia. Okay. Not bad. And so that wasn't okay, terrible. Okay, so it's a decent quality of life then. Yeah, it, it wasn't as bad as taking off for a year and not seeing your family. Right. You know, nothing yeah, like that. Yeah. Well, at the, at the risk of asking the weird, did it, and this is completely naive, I, but did you, did, did the first family interact with you? Did Was there inner, I mean, did, did somebody come in and say, hey, good morning, Gary? Well, actually, you know, uh, we were support staff. And the presidential staff and the president himself was different with all three that I was at. So I'm there when Nixon leaves and Ford takes over. And the change in demeanor was dramatic. Uh, in fact, this is an interesting tale, true tale. Uh, first time I met Ford. Uh, this commander of mine, who I previously had said was kind of like mm -hmm. a father figure to me, he had the duty all the time as the president's helicopter pilot. He took that very seriously, and out of 100 flights, he'd, he will have flown 99 of them. And the only time he wouldn't would be if there were simultaneous flights, like at two ends of an airport, okay. uh, airplane ride, you know. So uh, he had a rotating, we called it the Colonel's co-pilot. And you would, on a rotational basis, be assigned for a week to be the colonel's co-pilot. And whatever flights came up that week, you did with the colonel. So I'm on the colonel's co-pilot cycle, and uh, it's in the fall when uh, Ford had just arrived. So maybe September or October, we land on the White House lawn. Now, my boss, uh, the colonel, he'd already flown Ford a number of times. So Ford came up. Uh, air stair door just like you see today no change marines there saluting him mm -hmm. and president ford looks in at that cockpit and he sees dave Purney. that's the commander's name he says hi dave how are you today and dave says well i'm fine mr president and by the way i got another michigan boy with me because dave was a lansing guy oh okay and, he's, and ford says, oh you do and so ford walked up to the cockpit and Dave Purney says to him, yes, this is Gary Newman. He's a western Michigan guy, and he was born and raised outside of Saginaw. And so President Ford said, oh, pleased to meet you, and I know all about that. That location in school and whatever. So he, back, you know, takes a seat, and away we go. This was two years later, uh, but it's interesting in that, that Ford had a unusual ability to take a name and a face and match them and not forget them. And he did it routinely with a lot of different people. So two years later, which was the election year uh, of 76, 
President Ford was here in Michigan, and he made a run along the West Coast, and it ended up on Mackinac Island, where he spent the night. And uh, by that point in time, my time in the unit, I also did advance work for helicopter operations. I'd been there quite a while. So I would go ahead three, four days ahead of a presidential trip. And in this particular one, I was assigned to the Mackinac Island stop, which was kind of cool in its own way. Not bad. <laughs> so uh, it, it was going to be a night landing, which had its own little difficulties. We got a lighting system to make sure that that was done safely. But the important part of this story is we are on Mackinac Island. The president's on his way in on a helicopter. Uh, I'm talking to the helicopter pilot with a radio. I'm out there with flashlight wands. Oh, okay. And, uh, and then the lighting system that was actually a glide slope got pre the presidential helicopter down on the ground and shut off the rotors. Door, the door drops just like you see if he's doing it on a cell phone and out comes a couple of, of agents and President Ford. It's the end of a long day for President Ford. I mean, he's been doing this uh, since about 10 in the morning and this is about 11 Yo at night. yo up and down and going everywhere yeah. in there, yeah. So I'm standing there with these wands and President Ford looks around and I could tell he was kind of tired. And uh, he walked over towards me and held out his hand and he says, hi, I'm Jerry Ford and I'm running for president. And I said, Mr. President, I said, the, the crowd is just over here a bit. I said, uh, I'll take you over there. He said, looked at me and he says, Gary, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize you. How great is that? So <laughs> he, he grabbed a hold of my elbow and, I, and the agents are behind him. And I took him over to the crowd line and by that time the agents got out front to make sure there's only about a dozen people waiting yeah. for him because it was 11 at night. And he started at one line of those dozen people. And he said, hi, I'm Jerry Ford and I'm running for president. <laughs> and, he, and he went through the dozen people and that was the end of that story. But but that just shows you the way the guy could, That's pretty neat. could do that. So a couple of nice things about President Ford too was you got to spend, and I got to spend two of these, Christmas and New Year's in Vail. Oh, wow. He... Uh, he, of course, was a big skier, and so was his family. They had a condo there. But there was a, a big house. I think it was called the Bass House in downtown Vail. That they loaned it to President Ford and his staff when the Ford family would go to Vail. And uh, the one funny thing, by then I'm married, and my wife's not really receptive to my frequent departures. Your travel schedule. Yeah, my travel <laughs> schedule. And so... We're coming up on, I think it was the second Christmas. And uh, I think I was going to leave about the 15th of December to because we'd fly a helicopter all the way out to Vail. And, I was going to ask you, how do you get them around? Yeah. Uh, frequently, Meantime? if it was stateside, we'd fly them. <laughs> uh, if it was international, uh, we'd put them in the back of a uh, Air Force cargo plane. Like a C-130 or something? Bigger. Yeah. Okay. C-5. Yeah. yeah. There you go. 141. 141s and yeah. C-5s. Uh, but in any event, uh, to address that uh, that issue, bring me back to where I was going to No, go. she wasn't super happy with the oh, holiday. Oh, wasn't super You're happy, yeah. getting right head so, out on the 15th. So we said, <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll just have our Christmas on the 14th, and then I'll leave on the 15th. She said, that's fine. So we had our Christmas, and uh, she said, is it, is it too, big to, too big to ask that we just 
take the tree out. She said, because I'm losing the Christmas mood. I said, not at all. No. So I removed the tree and took it out in the, on, at the curb to get picked up. And my neighbor picked it up and put it in his house. Because <laughs> <laughs> he had a whole 10 days or 12 days. Two weeks to go. That's awesome. No worries. Well, that, that fall of 76, President Ford lost to Jimmy Carter. And uh, President Carter came in, in in January, like they all do, of the following year. Um, President President Carter was was also a, ter a totally different personality. He, oh, sure. You know, um, I think the difference that Ford made, you know, for a lot of people was he had spent so many years in the Congress. He was a representative out of uh, West Coast here for. 20-some years, I think, before he became vice president. Mm -hmm. So, but with, <clears throat> with Mr. Carter in the White House, I had a couple of interesting tours or, or periods of duty with him. One was Plains, Georgia. I had never been to Plains, and uh, President Carter was very interested in, well, zero-based budgeting was one thing that he did, and uh, another thing was basically... What did President Ford have when he went on a trip? Uh, how many helicopters? And we said, well, he'd usually take four. He said, we're going to do it with two. So those kind of adjustments happened. But okay. I was at the Plains, Georgia airport on a trip with him. And my commander, again, is Dave Purney. He's there, of course. And there's a fixed-based operator that had been flying Jimmy Carter around for years when he was governor and when he ran for president. Oh, okay. And he was a neat guy. Uh, and the Dave Purney, my commander, says, well, he said, I got a guy here that can't even fly a fixed-wing airplane. He's just helo only because of the Army. And this fixed-wing operator says, oh, I can make him a fixed-wing pilot. What he he didn't know was I had gotten a fixed-wing license <laughs> with my VI, with my GI Bill. But any event, he says, come on with me. So we went out and we jumped into it. Piper PA 180, I think it was, and went out to the runway, and he took it off, and, and he says, you got it, so I got it, and I took it around, and he just watched me come in, and, and he could tell when I landed, he said, I think you've had some time. <laughs> uh, you've Not done your first this time at the yoke. He said, he said <clears throat> let's try this once more, so I made a takeoff and another landing. He got out. <laughs> <laughs> he says, you're on your own. I thought, oh, man, I can't crash this one now. I think I made one more trip around and we quit. So that was fun. Those kind of things were nice light moments in those kind of situations. So by the summer of that year, that would be Jimmy Carter's first year in office, my time was up. I'd been there for four years. And uh, I didn't leave the area. I stayed for another year. I went to a junior officer's course for about 10 months. And uh, and then I was blessed with a one-year unaccompanied tour in Okinawa. Uh, wow. In fact, it was gone when my first child was born. <laughs> Marine Corps doesn't care about that too much. No. They, they're, you know, they're practical that way. That's about <laughs> it. So from there, uh, I, I just did another about... Uh, dozen years of active duty, um, enjoyed most of it, 
and uh, ended up along the way going back to the Army to <coughs> learn how to jump out of airplanes. Probably the most foolish thing I did, but I, <laughs> I, I took a assignment that required me to go to jump school, and it, it was the right thing to do in my mind at the time, but when I left an airplane under a parachute that was still running really good when I jumped out, right. that didn't make a lot of sense to me then. <laughs> That's true. I feel so really you got out about staying here. Did you do the whole 20? I did 20. <coughs> you got out as LC? Lieutenant Colonel, okay. yeah. Okay, all right. In, in 20 years. Um, in fact, <clears throat> The way the uh, Congress has military service beyond 20 years set causes a lot of people to make that call. Yeah, up or out. Up or out. Uh, and secondly, if I was just coming in zone for colonel, uh, and if I had received the promotion, I would have had to serve in the rank for three years before I could retire with the rank. Mm. So when you start plotting where you're at, and in fact, I was at a spot where they wanted me to go to Washington, D.C., to the headquarters of the mm -hmm. Marine Corps, which is not a real desirable billet, especially not for a pilot. And I'm thinking you're not doing a lot of flying in Washington, D.C. That's it. Not yeah. at all. Been in D.C., didn't lose nothing, don't want to go back. Yeah. yeah. Yep, that's right. <laughs> and I had two children in school by then, and so oh, it was an right. easy call. Yeah. Yeah. So... When when you said your your four years was up, so is this you you'd indicated the commander was a long time in in the seat. Uh, in your situation, did you guys just rotate in on a four year? More run? or less, and and the commander did too. Oh, okay. Me. Uh, one one unusual thing about HMX though, the commander has always been, in my experience been there before as a junior officer. And Dave Perney had been there for a tour as a captain and as a major, and then came back as a lieutenant colonel okay. as the commander. So and there's some continuity there that way. Yeah. And the, the XO, the number two guy in the unit, always fleets up after a couple of years to the CO's job. So they usually spend two years as the executive officer, then two years as the commander. Okay. Dave's case, he spent three years as a commander. Okay. And, uh, so, the desirable place, actually, from that perspective. I mean, I know a lot of generals that came out of that unit. Oh, yeah, that's been well-placed. Been well-placed, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, and that was Quantico. That was Quantico. Quantico yeah. And, and usually they would all leave to a top-level school for a year Yeah, we at, at the end of that assignment. We used to go to... I used to visit Donna Conoco occasionally, and those guys were, you know, you know they were some hyped officers. They were running around with a bottle of Mountain Dew in both hands, talking <laughs> on their tiptoes. You know. yeah. we, we talked a little bit about kind of the some of the personality nuances between the presidents you served. Um, were, anything stick out? Um, and, and obviously we don't do kiss and tell, but... Um, any unique stories that might come to mind that uh, it, for some, and, and the reason I'm, I'm kind of going down this path, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but at some point in time, I thought that there was, and I may have heard the story wrong, but something about Rosemary Woods tapes. 
Oh, yes, yes, Rosemary Wood tapes. Uh, <laughs> Let's get down to the dirt now. <laughs> uh, well, no, it, like I said, no kiss and tell, but... This is all right. Uh, so, uh, it, Nixon's in the White House, and uh, the, the tapes have just been discovered, their existence. And uh, it is hot news, you know, and... The, the first move that the White House made was uh, we are going to take these tapes and transcribe them and we'll be completely transparent. So I, <laughs> I happened to be the junior officer on the shift, that three-day shift at Anacostia. I, I was a junior officer for the shift and because you're a junior guy, you got to be the duty officer for the shift also. So... I'm the guy that uh, is answering the phone, this and that and the other thing. And I get a phone call from the White House. And it says, we are sending a staff car over shortly. And uh, one of your helicopters from Quantico is coming up to meet this staff car and take the occupants to Camp David. I said, okay, I understand. And, they, and White House military office. They have a military office in the White House. Okay. And, and the guy, Cliff Chirac was his name. Uh, he was a retired senior chief Navy guy. And a very, very competent guy. He said, and Gary, I'd appreciate it if, if you if give any assistance if there's any needed, making sure this goes smooth. I said, sure. So I get my cover on, hat on, and go down to the the guard shack, because we got a fence all around it, electric gate, and, and green guards. <clears throat> sure enough, a little bit, I hear a helicopter coming, and down the road I see a big black vehicle driving up. And sitting behind the wheel is a guy with a uniform hat on and a bunch of tags around his neck, and I just walked over to the, to the side of the car, and he showed me his ID, and I could see a woman in the right front seat, and three women in the back seat. And uh, he said, I'm here with Rosemary Woods and her staff to meet a helicopter. I said, yes, sir, I'm aware of that. Open the gate. Guard opens the gate, with a, hits the button. He says, and by the way, he says, I, I got some stuff in the trunk I'd like some help with. I said, sure, just drive over towards the helo. Don't go too close, please, but uh, drive over there, and I'll, I'll walk right over and give you a hand. So we did that opens up the trunk, and here's two aluminum footlocker kind of boxes. And they were heavy. Picked up one. He had one end, I had the other. We took it to the heel, came back, got the second one, took it to the heel. And he jumps in his car and takes off solo. And helicopter crew, they start up the heel, head over to Camp David. So I'm home that night or the next night. And I think it was the next night. President Nixon comes on. And he says, we, we are in the process of transcribing all these tapes. Rosemary Woods and her crew is up at Camp David doing this. <laughs> I said, now I know what was in those boxes. Well, and, and for the younger listeners, you know, we've got, we've got some folks that uh, probably weren't around to, uh, to recall that. But that was a huge deal. I oh, mean, it was. The, oh, man. The recordings of the president and his inner sanctum and uh yeah yeah, yeah. interesting one and sometimes well there were other funny things uh 
the name was the Big New Brzezinski. Oh, sure. And uh, <laughs> it, it was a weekend, and he was married, uh, quite honestly, to a much younger woman. <laughs> and uh, they had a dog. And I got the co-pilot job of flying him in a Huey to Camp David from the Pentagon pad. So That's a pretty quick throw, isn't it? Yeah, it's not too bad. Okay. Maybe 25 minutes. That's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah. So we repositioned to the Pentagon pad. Um, we did it with just two pilots, no crew chief. So I get to play kind of like crew chief when we land. We, we always shut off the engines so we didn't have any issues with a rotor. Right. <laughs> and that makes sense. You know, you see that too to this day on the South Lawn. Always had the rotor yeah, stop. That only needs to happen once. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so, exactly. the staff car pulls up with the big new Brzezinski and his wife and a dog, and they get out, and I man the sliding door on the UE, and they jump in, and I slide the door shut. I go back around, and everything's fine, and the pilot hits the starter, and the dog starts going crazy. It's a whine, the noise, I think, is what was mm. causing the dog okay. to howl. So what what do we do? I turned around and said, are we okay back here? And, yep, just keep keep her going, keep her going. So we did, took off, go up to Camp David. We land. I did the reverse, jumped out of the left front seat, go around to the sliding door. And by the way, the dog had run back and forth and it had smeared both windows. <laughs> really uh, nose autographs. Oh yeah, <laughs> I got the door open and the dog's the first one out. And the dog goes under the helicopter. And I said to myself, man, I hope they don't think I'm going to be the guy to help them out with the dog. <laughs> so I, after I'd gotten the door open, I said, well, the smart thing for Newman to do is to go back around to your own door. So I did, and I jumped in. And it was 10 minutes before they convinced that dog to come out from under the helicopter. <laughs> but I didn't get involved. I was pleased. Well, at least you didn't have to go down there. I didn't crap in the helicopter. No, no, you didn't do that. <laughs> That's good. Kind of no, that. when, when you say Huey, is that just vanilla Huey uh, that, like we, you would have flown both. overseas? Or? We had a white top version of, of a Huey. Uh, the Marine Corps and Navy used a twin engine, which is the major difference between a Marine Huey and an Army Huey. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so mostly because a lot of the operations by Marines were over water, and if you lose one engine and you only got one engine, you know what you're going to happen. Yeah. Have happened. Yeah. So uh, they uh, were twin-engine airplanes. And if I, I don't remember. I don't think that one was a white top Huey. So Big New wasn't high enough on the pecking order to command okay. a presidential helicopter. Mm -hmm. But we had some nice green ones that okay. we kept, you know, for generals and... <clears throat> it's still waxed up. So and they have tuck, yeah. tuck and roll upholstery or... <laughs> what I mean, were they dressed up on the inside? A little bit. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. I, did not, I don't think remember that we had carpeting in them. Uh, well, they're not sitting in canvas slings. No, that's correct. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, oh that's cool. What, um, relative to the... What do you do in Vail at Christmas while the first family's doing their thing? Well, you're still on standby. So, uh, in fact, there's a, that's another story. It, and, in fact, when you're there and, and you're on, on the colonel's co-pilot team, I mean, you're just, you know, 24-7, and 
until you rotate off that, mm-hmm. meaning you hang tight to the colonel because he's the guy that's going to get the call we want to make a move with the president. And uh, I remember one evening, this is, again, Dave Perney, my good friend. Uh, Colonel Perney says, uh, Gary, let's go out to dinner. I said, fine, sir, what would you like to have? He said, I was thinking Italian. I said, great, I'd enjoy some Italian. So we found an Italian restaurant. We go in, sit down, and he said, uh, why don't you have a glass of wine with dinner? I said, "Mm, Colonel, I'm your co-pilot tonight. Just a test. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The loyalty test. (laughs) He he says, Gary, he says, uh, they call me at midnight and tell me they want me to fly the president out of Vail, Colorado. He says, I'm going to have to have a couple shots just before I start the engines. (laughs) (laughs) So don't worry, we aren't going anywhere tonight. Well, I didn't it, have a glass of wine. Well, though. and it, it, flight conditions probably would have been a little tricky with them. Not oh, yeah. In the, in the, yeah, yeah. That, that's the biggest. Being problem. up in the front range is yeah. unique. Yeah, it <laughs> <You> is. <know? laughs> a lot of a lot of weird wind there. Yes, there is. Um, and and the uh, elevations, you know, I can remember when we flew from Denver, Colorado, over to Vail. <clears throat> we uh, had individual small oxygen bottles for everybody in the helo because mm. we went to 12.5. Okay. And uh, so as soon as we went past 10, which is a Navy regulation, we'd go on oxygen. Put on supplement. Put on supplement and make, make the climb over, over the yeah. last one. And then once you get back down under 10. But it's interesting. The air gets thin enough that a helicopter really becomes odd at those well, the kind handling's got to be strange in the thin. It is. The thinness of the air makes a big difference in how the helicopter feels. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the, the book makes you reduce airspeed um, because of the thinness of the air. Okay. So instead of being able to do 110 knots, say, in a Huey, you're down around 70 or 80, I think, mm-hmm. if I remember right. Well, it's got to feel like slow motion. It is, especially if you've got a headwind. Yeah. A little bit different than flying high humidity in the jungle. <laughs> yeah, high humidity in the jungle, the challenge was... Different set you, of challenges. <laughs> you, you flew right to, usually to the edge on the capabilities of the helicopter, so the margin for error wasn't too big. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of... I mean, in my own unit, we might probably lost or badly damaged three or four birds in that year, and almost exclusively to... Landings. We had one, one one catastrophic, fatal accident that was due to flying into a mountain, but in bad weather. But uh, the rest of them were That'll landings. Definitely leave a mark. Because yeah. mm. you had a good, interesting military career. I did. That's uh, you know you can do a lot of good, fun stuff in the military. Yes, you can. I mean, there's a lot of the bad stuff that goes along. Yeah. And sometimes the. You know, there's some interesting stuff that comes along. Yeah. It's not all peaches and cream, but I, you sur- surely found the silver lining there. That's uh... yes, and and for example, uh, another facet of this, I, I left the Marine Corps as a retiree in, in 1990, so I have now been retired for 31 years, and I served for less than 21, hmm. uh, and I retired at age 43. And I never had to have 
a full-time job after that, uh, simply because I, I had a supplement right from 43 on, you know, a retirement right. that started. Okay, let's move on to that then. You ran, after you got out, you did Rogue Angler? Yes, I did. Because I know I got stuff laying around the house. <laughs> that was good stuff. It, the, that clock I bought with the neon ring on, yep, that yep. still works. <laughs> good for you. It's still in the rod shop, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's in the rod shop. And that neon ring still flashes. Yeah, it still goes. <laughs> yeah I, I, yeah. I, I retired in 90 to 91. I started Gifts by Wanigas is what I called it because my father had had Wanigas Rod Company. Sure. And I used a mailing list to, from him to get okay. started. And... Uh, so I, I kept that until 2001. I probably would have kept it longer, except that I had to make a decision whether I was going to get big or not do it anymore. Mm. And about the same time, I uh, had a stent installed. Oh, wow. So I said, you know, there's other things in life than spending all fall in a basement packing orders. Uh, and I found a guy... Uh, Jim was the owner of the, and changed the name to the Rogue Angler. Mm. And by the way, it's been sold again. Mm -hmm. So now it's on its third owner. That's wild. It, there's just in the uh, small ads in the Michigan Trout Magazine, yep. you'll still see it, still, still maintain a little two by three or yep. whatever. Yeah, I got the grayling picture. Oh, that's cool. Is, is that you? You found that, right? I found that. Yeah. In, in fact, I didn't find it. It was in my cabin here when I bought it. Well, there you go. And uh, so it, it had suffered some serious uh, fading damage over the years because it had to be probably 60, 70 years. I'm making a guess because it came from a glass plate. That, that was the original. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was a glass plate. Uh, um, what do they call it? Photography. That, oh, the yeah. So you're basically etching the image uh, with acid on the glass, glass plate. plate. So exposure. Yeah. I had a, a guy I worked with at uh, Northrop Grumman. Uh, I, I worked there part-time uh, for about 20 years doing exercises. And this guy that I worked with was a big photography nut, right down to the dark room and all that. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I, I gave him the picture that I had that was kind of washed out. And I said, you think there's anything you can do with that? And it was amazing. It was a black and white, but he did amazing work on bringing it back up. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, it's pretty cool. I mean, that what would the agent be? Silver oxide that uh, was on I the think glass. I think it's right. I think it is. And and it does degrade over the course of time, and so you you get that grain effect, if you will, and being able to retouch that and you know restore it, if you will, and, and bring it back is pretty you cool. Got any stuff. idea how many of those you sold? I mean, how many are out there? Oh man, there's a lot of them. Oh, there you're right. That one in the and. Uh, I fish because I love to. Testament of Fishermen. Oh, yeah, yeah, Volker. Testament of Volker. Yeah. yeah. In fact, uh, I I found that one by accident. It came to me unsolicited. They'd seen the catalog someplace, and they said, "Would you like to carry this?" So that, that's how I. And, and then the Volker family, after about two years, came to me and said, "That's copyrighted." I said, oops, didn't know that. I got that from a, a, two ladies who were, were doing it, um, you know, just out of their basement out, or whatever. Out of their basement yeah. and, and, and going to craft shows. And I said, so how can we make this work? And they said, uh, 
we think 10% uh, of every sale would be reasonable. I said, sounds reasonable to me. That's so, cool. That's what we did. <laughs> if everything were that easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good Lord. Yeah, I actually got one of those from Woody, so. Oh. Got one of the, the originals, I guess. With, with the, um, before we cut you loose, any any other favorite stories or impactful events during your <sighs> your tenure? I gave Miss Lillian her first ride in a helicopter to Camp David, and she said she enjoyed it. <laughs> that's that's so, Jimmy Carter's mom. That's awesome. And she was, and again, for the younger listeners, the Carter family was a very unique event um, in terms of personalities as it interacted with the culture in America at that at that point yeah. in time, they they were. Uh, I hesitate to say colorful, but kind of. Um, you know, we had Uncle Billy. Billy and, was a. <laughs> was just way out in left he, he field. He was, <laughs> and he was very approachable. I mean, he, if if you were out on the road with the president, he, he was usually around someplace, and he'd come by and just chat yeah. with folks, you know, and yeah. yeah. It's just, it, it It was not the, you know, coming out of the the Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, the whole kind of still pretty upright and the stereotypical, you know, head of state sort yeah. of family type of thing. And then, and then it was the Carter years. Yeah, kind of like <laughs> John Foster Dulles, the hee-haw. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It was, it was unique. And, and it was Ms. unique. And Mrs. Carter was a very pleasant lady. I uh, had the occasion on a, a couple of different times. They used Camp David quite often. So if you had the colonel's co-pilot duties, uh, then a Camp David run with with uh, was in the cards. Carter was common. <laughs> and uh, would you? Okay. So I'm sorry, Gary. We had a little hiccup there. Um, Mrs. Carter. Mrs. Carter. Yes, very pleasant lady, and uh, I just sort of bumped into her at Camp David. Uh, there was a building. Uh, by the way, Camp David's a beautiful spot, and uh, it, and it's it's very well maintained. And uh, every president's got something that they have more interest in than the previous. So he brings in a tennis court. I think that's what the Carters had. Mm -hmm. Was Nixon the bowling alley? Uh, yeah, I think Nixon was the bowling alley. Yeah, that's that what makes it, sense. And somebody yeah. in there was a swimming pool. And, right, right, you know, right. So those kind of things, you know, were gone. But uh, I'm in this staff building, and Mrs. Carter comes in, and she walked right over, and she says, "Hello, my name's Mrs. Something." Rosalind. Rosalind. Rosalind Carter. Mm -hmm. I said, "Yes, Mrs. Carter, I know who you are." <laughs> <laughs> and so we had a chit chat. Of course. Typical, want to know my hometown. So we chatted about this, chatted about that. Yeah. She's just, they, they seem like very genuine people. Yes. Um, I agree. Uh, and one last joke about Mr. President Carter. So this was at Plains, and uh, the president had been at some Democratic function. And uh, we had flown him there in a he in a Huey, a white top Huey, and then flew him back. And a good friend of mine was 
you know, a young officer like me, Captain. He was, he was controlling the, the landing zone upon the return of, mm. of uh, President Carter. So the Huey comes in and lands, and Colonel Purney gets the rotor stopped, and my friend slides the door open so the President and Mrs. Carter can get out, and the President is carrying a glass donkey that he had been presented at this oh, oh, Democratic, Democratic meeting. donkey, yes, okay. And uh, <laughs> he hands it to my buddy, Bill, and he said, uh, I trust you can make sure that this arrives undamaged back in Washington, D.C. Bill said, of course, Mr. President. So Carter takes off with his wife, they leave. Bill turns around, walks over towards where I'm at and some other hangers-on by the LZ. He says, man, he says, I think that guy could get me in some serious trouble if I didn't get this back in good shape. I said, yeah, that's that's a given. Yeah, you'd, you'd no longer be a Marine. Yeah, have two busted ass. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> kind of career-limiting move. Well, Gary, thank you. You bet. It's, this has been fun. and. Um, yeah. I enjoyed it too. Yeah, we always enjoy chatting with you, and uh, I, I, I know our listeners enjoy hearing your stories. So thanks again, sir. Sir, anytime. All right, anytime. Guys. Richard, until next uh, time. Enjoy the hot stove. Glad you listened. Goodbye. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Short, sweet, and to it. Bye, guys. Well, that was a fun way to put a cap on our hot stove uh, edition chat. Uh, Gary's always a treat to listen to and uh, uh, nice, nice to end on a high note. So uh, we'll be back next week. Uh, be sure to tune in. Uh, the Backcast podcast uh, will be back in full flavor, and we'll be talking things of a trout nature. We'll look forward to talking with you then. <laughs>